This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. All eyes were on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week as lawmakers transmitted the articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. Her daughter, Christine, who is a political strategist, has written a book about her mother and is in Honolulu for an event tonight. The book is called The Nancy Pelosi Way, Advice on Success, Leadership, and Politics from America's Most Powerful Woman. Here's part of a conversation that we had with Christine Pelosi as she sat down with us this morning. This is my 10th or 11th visit and my fourth as far as doing book events. I've, I've, this is the third book I've written. My first two books were campaign boot camp books about running for office. So I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of the Hawaii young Democrats and uh, women's activists. And now my third book that I'm here promoting and talking about is The Nancy Pelosi Way. And it's about a subject I know well, my mom. And it talks a lot about her life growing up in an Italian Catholic home in Baltimore, Maryland, and her life raising us in San Francisco. She and my dad, Paul Pelosi, had five kids within six years and one week. And for the longest time, she was our mom and not even running for a party office until we were in high school and didn't run for Congress until we were in college. So most of the Nancy Pelosi way and her way of doing things is really built around her servant leadership. It's only been really the second part of her life that she was in elective office as a party or public official. So a lot of the lessons that I think we draw from are really significant now as we go into the weekend of the anniversaries of the Women's March and Martin Luther King weekend, where we talk about jobs, justice, and peace. And we talk about, you know, everyday citizens and residents of the community wanting to get involved and get engaged and find a way to serve their community and make their mark. I'm curious about how the conversation was when you asked your mom, gee, you know, can I write a book about you? And how did that go? Well, I didn't actually. What happened was Simon and Suster is writing a book series on women leaders. And they already had one for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, our wonderful heroine. She wrote on the Supreme Court called the RBG way, and they wanted to write one called the Nancy Pelosi way. And they, since I had written a couple of books, they wanted me to collaborate with them. And I said, well, it can be authorized, but I'm going to be the author. I'm going to have all the final cut. And by the way, I'm not going to interview my mom or let her read it. Under the House rules, no member of the House of Representatives can personally benefit or have their immediate family member personally profit from their office. And so if I had let her read it or edit it, she would have been contributing materially to the book. So she just had to trust 50 years of child rearing to me. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, your mom giving you an open mic, only it's an open book. So so that's interesting. So has she read it? She has read it. Of course, she had her own grammatical critiques being raised by the nuns of Baltimore and the Immaculate Conception School. She definitely had some some things to say about the grammar. But, but other than that, I think mostly she liked it. It was very modest. She said, well, you know, it's a little too positive. I said, mom, you're my mom. Somebody else can write a a mean book about you. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but also, what I try to do with the book is say, look, this is a way of doing things. It's not necessarily a partisan book because the lessons are universal. For example, every day for us, when I was growing up, started the night before because we would eat dinner, do the dishes, lay out the cereal, and set the table for the next day. Then in, my mom would make sure that the four girls had our Catholic school uniforms pressed, shined with white shoe polish, and making sure that the five of us had done our homework with her mantra, proper preparation prevents poor performance. So the morning of, we would wake up, get into those clean clothes, make our beds, homework already done, had the lunches set up assembly line. So after we ate breakfast and cleared that table, we were making our own lunches, and then we were off to school on the bus. She would line the four girls up and make braids for all of us super, super tight. And then we were off to school. So over and over and over again, you know, the Nancy Pelosi way is to get ready and to and to know the tasks that are ahead of you and to say, now, how can I get ready for the next thing I have to do? How can I be logistically organized? Because if you're You've got five kids. You know that every single day they have to be fed breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They have to go to school. They have to have their uniforms pressed, and they have to have their homework done. That could e either you could tear your hair out or you could get a system that's going to work and engage your kids in helping themselves. And frankly, she runs the House Democratic Caucus the same way. Okay. You, know, <laughs> the, you know, these 200 and some odd people 
are doing their work. She just wants to make sure that they're doing it with all the preparation and support that that they need in order to be successful. So when you sit at home and you watch her, uh, you know, on the floor, uh, you know, with this latest thing with the uh, uh, the articles of impeachment, uh, you know, that look that, you know, with the finger, you know, where that, that just the look that killed, right? Uh, how do you see your mom? I mean, do, do you see her, you know, uh, the signs of stress? Because you know your mother. Well, the one thing is that when we were growing up, the five of us were constantly, um, being Italian and all, were constantly voicing our opinions and, and constantly arguing with each other. And coalition politics shift. When you have five kids, it could be two on three, then a different three on two, and then four against one. And, you know, sometimes, you know, every person for themselves. And so she constantly had to kind of build those coalitions. And she there was a couple of things that she would always say, like, don't be a mismatters, make matters worse, right? If someone's in trouble and you're squealing, you're going to get in more trouble for squealing than they did for the original trouble. And by the way, if they do get in trouble, you will not get the satisfaction of watching them get disciplined. That will be happening somewhere else, um, not in front of you. So you worry about your own self and let other people worry about themselves. And so, you know, our parents really treated us quite differently. And the more stressed and, and wild things became, the more serene she would be. And I see the same thing happening now because she, she doesn't internalize stress. She's always said when we were growing up, and she said it all throughout politics, criticism and effectiveness go hand in hand. So if you're upset, don't agonize, organize. The Team Pelosi uh, you know, logo is don't agonize, organize. So people would say to her, oh, my God, they're saying this really mean thing about you. And she'd say, okay, what are you going to do about it? Go do a house party. Go knock doors. Go do a phone bank. Help me out. You don't need to tell me about the criticism. And you can't, if you internalize what other people say about you, first of all, you lose your own sense of self because you're defining yourself by what other people think of you. You get too high on your highs. And in order to get a high, you just only surround yourself by sycophants. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Or... Um, you really, if you internalize all the criticisms, then you're constantly doubting yourself and you can't let doubt creep into what you do. And I think especially for women, we are so, we have so many mantras internalized with us by our elders. Sometimes they're just trying to teach us lessons from their own experience about being discriminated against. And so it's, it's coming from a good place. Other times, it's coming from a jealousy place of, well, I didn't make that choice, so I'm going to be jealous of somebody who did, and I'm going to um, throw out all sorts of, you know, blocks in the in the path. But the ultimate secret to success, Nancy Pelosi would say, is be your own authentic self. Don't get too high on the highs. Don't get too low on the lows, and let every day be a new day. Because if you if you do that then the stress of yesterday belongs to yesterday and the possibility of today belongs to today so when you hear someone um, uh, say you know nancy pelosi she's an assassin last cycle in 2018 there were 137,000 negative ads specifically mentioning nancy pelosi some of them by democrats most of them by republicans and conservatives that would make anybody i think just crawl into bed, put the covers over their head and say, forget it, right? But she thrived on it. She'd say, okay, well, they've got 137,000 negative ads, but she raised a quarter billion dollars and did tens of thousands of grassroots events organized around the country to uh, win back the house on the message of protecting our care, expanding paychecks, and restoring faith in government by trying to get big money out and lifting up the grassroots. And so as a practical matter, the For the People agenda is what she stuck to. So when people criticize her, um, you know, bring it on. It's been over 20 years of that, and uh, it hasn't stopped her before, so it's not going to stop her now. The only thing I would say is that Despite the fact that she's been in the public eye for 20 years and beside the fact that she has, in, in terms of national leadership, um, longer at home in San Francisco, and despite the fact that for the last couple of years there's been a lot of press about her, when I wrote the book and published The Nancy Pelosi Way, there were so many people who wrote to me and said, oh, my gosh, I didn't know she had five kids. 
I didn't know she had that many kids. I didn't. There's some basic things about her story that people didn't even know. So I guess the lesson I would say to the listeners is, regardless of what you think the community knows about you, it's always important to tell uh, to tell your story over and over again so that people know your why. They know that you know your why and they know where something comes from. And that way, uh, you can't take for granted that, oh, they might have read it on your website or they may have heard it from someone else. You don't know what people are saying. Right. But if even Nancy Pelosi um, has to keep telling her own personal story with as much as she's in the news, that means we all have to keep doing that for ourselves to assert who we are as human beings. Where, where do you feel like you fall short? I mean, because your mother is in this position of power and she has this advice you know, about success and leadership. And is there any one area where you feel like, wow, I just I just can't live up to my mother in this one area? Well, it's a, it's a matter of having very different styles. Like, for example, there's a story I tell in the book um, about how when we were fighting to protect uh, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act from the repeated efforts of President Trump and the Republicans to overturn it or replace it with something that would not uh, protect people, particularly um, the... 130 million Americans with pre-existing medical conditions. There was a rally uh, the night before a big Senate vote. And I was watching it at home on C-SPAN and live tweeting it. And I see my mom out there with all these all these patient groups and advocates. And it was really beautiful. The disability rights groups, the children, the people advocating for particular disease research and treatment, all of these groups, right? So then she starts giving this speech about John McCain and about how it was a night before the Senate vote, and John McCain, and you know he's getting treatment for cancer, and you know we're hoping that he'll be able to make the vote tomorrow and to do the right thing. So I call her and I leave her a message, and I said, "What about Maisie? What about Maisie? Maisie Hirono, our beloved Maisie? She's a senator. She's got cancer. She's leaving her cancer treatments too to come vote. I can't believe you didn't mention Maisie." So I hang up. So then I got a call back, and. I was away from my phone, so I got a message. And her message back was, I received your very stern message. Be calm. I have a plan. That was all she said. Then she hung up. So what I didn't know until I was reporting for the book was two things. One, after she made that speech, she went upstairs and called John McCain. So really had an audience of one. Mm -hmm. And second, Maisie already knew. She was good. Senator Hirono was going to come back and protect our care. She knew she was not the subject of that plea. So I told this story to George Miller, former congressman from California, really good friends with both Maisie and Nancy. And he just laughed. He just laughed. And he said, see, Maisie was good. She knew she was good. But there you were thinking that you had to set your mother straight. She already right. had a plan. She just was never going to tell you what it was. So for me, I chair the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus. I'm a women's rights <laughs> lawyer. Right. For me, I'm like, well, why aren't we mentioning this woman of color? Why are we talking about this older white guy? I mean, my whole worldview was, why aren't we lifting up our people? Right, but your mother, Nancy Pelosi, was a step ahead of you. I mean, like 20 steps ahead of me. And by the way, so was Maisie. And that was Christine Pelosi, daughter of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She'll be talking at a community event in Honolulu tonight and signing copies of her book, The Nancy Pelosi Way. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Bush Consulting. Think the opera only happens in large venues? Think again. Join us Saturday, January 25th in HPR's Atherton Studio when Hawaii Opera Theater presents Great American Voices, a collection of opera, operetta, and musical theater numbers presented without amplification in HPR's cozy studio. Get your tickets now at hprtickets.org or call 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. 
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at the history of Hawaiian language in print, the Hawaiian language newspapers. With the arrival of the missionaries came the introduction of written language to Hawaiians. In early 1822, through the efforts of the first Protestant missionaries, a written form of Hawaiian language was standardized over 40 years after Western contact. Quickly learned in courtly circles, the king and chiefs encouraged the entire Hawaii nation to learn literacy. They set up schools, a teacher's college, and an education system. Within a generation, most of the kingdom was literate. Another generation later, Hawaii would become a completely literate nation, a very unique accomplishment worldwide. Hawaiian writers generated several million pages of written Hawaiian stories over the next century. The first printing press was transported 18,000 miles around Cape Horn to Hawaii. A former Kentucky pressman and missionary, Reverend Lauren Andrews, taught male Hawaiian students how to gather information, write articles, and actually print it. Hawaiian language newspapers operated over a span of 114 years, from 1834 to 1948, with over 100 different newspapers. The first printing press was established on Maui at Lahaina Luna School. And we want to know, what was the name of the first newspaper to be printed in Hawaii in 1834? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Be the first one to get it right and get a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from the Realtors and staff of Locations, proudly supporting HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. Impeachment is serious business, but some people may be suffering from impeachment fatigue. We invited funny man Frank DeLima to put a smile on our face. Over the holidays, he debuted his impeachment song. It's a fundraiser for his nonprofit, a group that uh, offers enrichment programs that takes him to schools across the state. Take a listen to a snippet of the 12 days of impeachment. Number five, day of impeachment, the news went out to me. Five quid pro quo. Four long-winded lawyers, three print professors who doubtful diplomats, and one whistleblower that we all know can see. I love that song. Frank DeLima joins us live. Welcome. Thank you. Well, glad to be here. You know, I, I saw the article in the newspaper, and so I you know went to your website and played it, and it, mm-hmm. it just had me in stitches. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that's my point is... Um, First of all, how did I gather any kind of knowledge of it? And uh, because I, uh, I do only the school program now, every morning I go to a school. I DVR uh, things, you know, and because uh, there's always uh, possibilities of parodies coming that uh, develop along the way, and and uh, so um, I DVR those all those sessions. Oh wow! Um, and <laughs> and I watched them. Sometimes I sped it up when they were asking the same question again the next day. You know, but um, uh, what I gathered is what I put on the uh, um, the song in a light, just to lighten things up, and um, and uh, that's what I do with parodies. I decide which ones can be lightened and which ones cannot. And uh, so this is how I, what I came up with. I came up with at the end, the 12th day of Christmas, is it, it developed us of Ukraine, my, uh, you, Ukraine, <laughs> you, we grain, wait, Ukraine, we gain migraine. migraine. Yes. <laughs> because of all of this back and forth and, and questions and all of that stuff. I said, ah, 
you know. Well, it was hours of uh, of hearing. Yes. So how long did it take you to write the song? Oh, that that was a couple hours, and uh, then I recorded it, but I didn't like it. The way it was, it was too boring. So I changed it, and I put in what she said, he said, they said, and all that kind of stuff. And um, it sounded better. So that's the one that I, I gave to the radio station. So describe the creative process. I mean, so you put this together, you know, you you say you didn't really like it. It wasn't quite right. So then do you just, like, uh, let other people listen to it and give their two cents? Uh, um, I What I do is I uh, I rewrite it. And then I share it. And uh, then I say, well, maybe could you tweak this one? I have a good friend, Patrick. Ah, uh, yes, Patrick yeah. Downs. He's wonderful. So <laughs> he helps me to tweak things. And uh, sometimes he comes up with the, the, the song. You know, it all depends. And um, so more recently, though, that I've been just kind of doing it myself and then getting him to, to help me to tweak. And... Um, and so that's what I came up with, the one whistleblower that we all know can see. Because <laughs> they are still calling for the whistleblower, you know. And so I thought that would be a perfect 12 death the first day. And so tell us about the feedback that you're getting. Um, I got good feedback because uh, um, people understand that it's comedy. And uh, so what it is is um, we get people to download it for free. And... Um, and I asked them if they would like to donate to my student program. I volunteer my time every morning, and I go to all the schools, almost all, the ones that participate, and um, there's expenses, especially in neighbor islands. And so uh, any donation helps me to, so that I don't have to pay my own expenses. And the first 10 years or a little bit more, I paid for everything, but then entertainment got less and less in, in Waikiki. Before you know it, all the showrooms closed. So um, I went out to ask for community help, and I wanted to make an effort. So I thought, oh, I'll go do parodies and uh, lighten things up and let people donate if they wish. Yeah, so that's that's that. That's the answer. <laughs> well, and, and you're a nonprofit. I mean, it's been going um, for so long. And, and you were out what, on the west side this morning. You're wearing a lei, you mm -hmm. know, so you've just come. Uh, yeah, I from, know, from IPA, on. Island Pacific mm -hmm. Academy. And um, so the, uh, very good. It was it was wonderful audience. Every, I've been fortunate that, you know, the kids know me from the 422-2222 commercial. <laughs> yes. And so they're already excited when I come. And so, therefore, they will give me any all that f minutes that they're with me, me the opportunity to share. And so, um, they're the listeners. I'm the talker. I'm the singer. I'm the I'm the joker. And uh, it's why it goes so smooth. Every school, no matter where, no matter what island, it's. It's um, always about the same reaction I get from the kids. Yeah, so share the, what, what you, the joy oh, that you okay. get from... Um, you mean with the message that yeah. I give them? Okay. Well, it's a, it's a message of um, the little kids. For example, K to, K to 3, I have them repeat after me. Why do we... we come, well, sorry, we come to school to learn. We need to learn so we can get a job. We need to get a job so we can pay our bills. We need to pay our bills so we can have a happy life. And with a happy life, we go out into the community and help those in need. And that, to me, is a complete circle of success. It's not only money. And, um, and then I, I go into explaining each part. And so to come to school to learn, but human beings only can learn if they focus. Human beings can only do the right thing when they focus. You know, while crossing the street, if they're on their cell phone, they might get hit, you know, or in the car and they hit somebody. You know, whatever it may be, focusing is what humans need. And so I talked to them a little bit about that, you know, eyes, ears, and brain on whatever you're doing. And, um, and, and we, I'm sure your message always uh, goes down uh, uh, with, uh, with a lot of help from humor. So I'm sure they yes, just, yeah. I, I do the parodies. Mm -hmm. I write parodies from the pop songs that they, they know, and I change it the words to um, enhance my message. Right. And uh, so then I end with a comedy song. In the middle, it's, so they love the yeah. songs because it's all happy and rapping. Right. So and you it just gives the message 
solid. You so know, you, you put a smile on everybody's face. Yeah. And for folks who who want to see you, you're going to be at the Blue Note next week. That's right. Next week, uh, Thursday, the twenty third. I'll be at the uh, Blue Note. Okay, all right. So put a smile on your face. Yes, Catch come. Frank DeLima. Thank See you us. so much. Okay. <laughs> well, you're delighted to have Frank DeLima live in studio talking about his new impeachment song, a fundraiser for his nonprofit work in our schools. The song's a lighthearted listen on a serious subject, about to get more serious next week, so lighten up. Number 12, day of impeachment, the news went tell to me. 12, Ukraine, Ukraine, we all gain a migraine. 11, obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. 10, she said, she heard, he said. 9, they said, he said, what he said. 8, I don't know what he said. 7, I assume that's what he said. 6, I'm not sure he said what he said. 5, quid pro quo. Four long-winded lawyers, three print professors who doubtful diplomats, and one whistleblower that we all know can see. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. Listen for MLK, three landmark speeches, speech highlights, and commentary. In his great speeches, he gives us a glimpse of that future um, that he will never live to see. How long, not long. That's MLK, three landmark speeches, a Peace Talks radio special. Monday morning at 11. HPR relies on member support to make important investments in our infrastructure. And one of those investments has just gone live. 103.1 KJHF is now airing HPR 1 to West Maui, Lanai, and Molokai. So tune in and program your presets to 103.1 KJHF in Kuala Pu'u. And mahalo to every one of our members for making it possible. Honolulu Civil Beat brings us our reality check with a story about a lawsuit filed over a local private school uh, over a recent drowning this past summer. Education reporter Suvan Lee joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, it's a Midpack Institute uh, is the school that we're talking yeah. about. Correct. That's the school in which the um, events took place um, through its extended learning program. And this is a incident that happened last year in March 20 of 19. Okay, yes, yeah, it's summer, so that so it was springtime. Yes, yeah, so essentially this lawsuit um, revolves around a spring break day camp that the young five-year-old who tragically drowned was enrolled in. Um, he wasn't a regular student at this school, but his parents enrolled him and his older brother in this week-long day camp. Um, again, run through Midpac Institute, which is a private school here in Honolulu. And what happened is that the... Um, Events took place during an excursion, an unplanned kayak excursion to a windward side beach where, of course, two lives were lost, um, that of five-year-old Alaric Chu and that of a 63-year-old camp supervisor named Mariah Davis. And so uh, what happened if it was an unplanned uh, excursion or an event as part of this excursion? Right. So according to the lawsuit, which was filed yesterday in the First Circuit Court, um, this was not on the planned itinerary. So these campers um, were taken out to a, uh, sounds like a, a residence that faced the, faced the beach. Um, the owners of these kayaks were friends of the camp counselors slash supervisors. Um, so this was a detour from the day's events. So, of course, parents had no opportunity to authorize or provide consent to their kids being taken out into the water. But according to the lawsuit, this was meant as a fun fun event, a surprise, if you will, for the, for the little campers. Um, but as the lawsuit lays out, there were just a series of actions that were not taken to ensure the kids' safety, starting from... Uh, no life vests, uh, no safety assessments, no swim assessments taken to determine whether the kids could swim. Um, so I don't believe anyone intended, of course no one intended, for uh, the tragedy to occur, but it was a series of uh, decisions taken by the adult supervisors that you know set up the circumstances here. Right, and the, the, the uh, kayak uh, overturned and everybody was in the water, so uh, unfortunate. 
So according to the lawsuit, Alaric, the five-year-old, was taken out in a two-person kayak with two other kids and Davis. So four people in this small kayak, they were about 150 feet off of shore when a wave capsized the kayak. This is when two kids clung to the side of the kayak. Davis herself is believed to have suffered a heart attack and died, while Alaric drowned. Uh, and, and from there, the lawsuit continues um, as far as what 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 happened. He's believed to have been, um, you know, floating face down for at least half an hour before help came from those who were on shore um, by the beach. So it's just a series of, of things that happened, including the parents not being alerted, um, the kids' parents not being alerted to what had happened. It took a call from the father to... Castle Medical Center's emergency room, in fact, to learn that his son had drowned. And he did not learn that from the camp supervisors. It's really unfortunate. And so uh, any response from the school on this lawsuit? So I reached out to Midpack Institute yesterday during business hours to get comment on the complaint. Um, Did not hear back. Uh, A school representative did offer a comment offering condolences to the death of the young boy. But beyond that, the school has not Official and uh, issued any official statement in response to the suit. Well, I'm sure it's a wake up call for not just that school, but for all schools um, on uh, you know the policies that need to be in place and what needs to be followed. But thank you, Suvon. Sure thing. Thank you. That was reporter Suvon Lee with today's reality check. To read her full story about this lawsuit, visit civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Pacific Database, Chaminade University, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. House Speaker, Senate President, and the Governor put on a united front on key issues they'll be looking to advance this session. That seemed like a good thing, like coming together last year to try to tackle our housing and homeless crisis. But one watchdog group wonders if there hasn't been some horse trading on issues that the public doesn't know about yet. We talked to Common Cause Director Sandy Ma. You know, Common Cause, Hawaii wants our government to work collaboratively and cooperatively. We want our government to work smoothly. But we are concerned about the appearance of backroom dealing. The bills must still go through the constitutionally mandated legislative process and be open for public comments and public input. The Hawaii state constitution requires, among other things, as you know, that for a bill to become law, there must be three readings for public notice of proposed legislation so that the public may have the opportunity to participate in the legislative process. This will allow the public to comment, review the legislation, and comment and provide input to our legislators so that our review of legislation can be uh, taken into account. This is the people's house. Legislators are supposed to be responsive to the people's will. And so while we do want our branches of government to work together, we would like to be part of the process. Uh, We would like to be able to review proposed testimony and to be able to comment meaningfully on any proposed legislation. So you don't want to see anything circumvented? Correct. So while they have a proposed package, we don't want it to be a foregone conclusion. We, We would still, the people would still like to be able to comment, provide meaningful comment and meaningful opportunity to be heard. The devil's in the details, right? So we got to see what's in the bill. Exactly. We're glad everyone's working together. It it should be that way. But, uh, you know, the people should be involved also. The people should have an opportunity to comment. It was interesting also to see uh, numerous groups band together to encourage civic engagement, you know, with the Kako app. We absolutely 100 percent support civic engagement and, and people participating in our legislative process and people voting that uh, we need for a healthy, vibrant democracy, we need to vote and we need to engage our legislators and we need to engage in the legislative process. So, yes, please get out the vote. We need to hold power accountable. That is 100 percent true. 
um, how, however you do that, whether you go through the CACO app or just do it on your own through uh, the legislative website, please engage your um, uh, elected representatives at the federal, state, county level, neighborhood boards. Just do it. And so what is a Common Cause working on this session? We would like to um, see automatic voter registration enacted this session. We think it will help vote by mail. We think that is vitally important to streamline our voting, modernize our, our voting. You know, when you are interacting with the DMV, we think it's just a smoother, easier process. You're already giving all your information. Just to, at that stage, say, hey, wait a minute. I could decide right now if I want to be registered to vote. So we think um, automatic voter registration is should be the next step in improving our voting modernization efforts. We also like to see some uh, ethics reform enacted. We think it'd be on time to, to move in that direction. I think the people would like would like to see our elected officials uh, support some ethics reform legislation. Yes. Now, you folks also recently sponsored an ethics forum uh, where you had uh, the former city ethics director, Chuck Tato, one of his investigators. Uh, you, know, you, 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 you brought up some of these issues in light of the, the political corruption trial that we saw of the uh, former police chief and his wife, the top deputy in the city prosecutor's office. So, yes, we, we think people sometimes get disillusioned by our elected officials and and I, I think almost everyone who's elected to office, uh, I would think 100% who are elected to office, enter with the noblest intentions and want to serve the public good. And so I think uh, it's time to show show the people that uh, we have ethics, transparency, and accountability at the forefront. And, and let's pass some ethics reform authorizing forfeiture of certain ERS benefits pursuant to court order for state or county employees who are convicted of employment-related felonies. I think that will not cover <laughs> very many people in state government <laughs> or county government, uh, but that's just a first step in showing that our elected officials care about ethics and accountability and we're not shielding our own. I think that's a first step legislation. This has come up in previous years, but there's just not been enough support to actually pass a, f- a felony forfeiture rule or law retirement benefits. I hope there could be some movement on this, given the Kaloha trial, and, and we hate to harp on that issue, but I, I can't imagine that this would affect very many people in state government, like I said, and, and it's just it just shows that we, uh, that elected officials care more about ethics and accountability than shielding our own. The same groups that are pushing the CACO app are also pushing the need to be counted with the uh, upcoming census. Common Cause nationwide support the census effort because the census is forms our, our democracy going forward for the next 10 years because the census counts everybody and forms public policy going forward for the next 10 years. The census will determine how many congressional representatives we have. We have two now. We aim to keep the two going forward. And so the census is vitally important. It determines our share of uh, federal funding that we have. So the census is vitally important. I know that the uh, gut and replace issue uh, is in the courts right now. Yes. The gut and replace litigation. We are on appeal, and the Hawaii Supreme Court has agreed to take the case. Yes, so it's uh, before the Hawaii Supreme Court now. We were talking to Sandy Ma, head of the Watchdog Group Common Cause Hawaii, who says transparency, along with campaign finance reform, will be among the other issues they will be bird dogging this session. language newspapers ran from 1834 to 1948. Despite a small and declining population, Hawaiian writers generated several millions of pages of, of written Hawaiian, 
in a little over a century. With 114 years, over 100 different newspapers were published and distributed. Some were monthly, many were weekly, and a couple even ran daily. It was common practice for people to save all their issues throughout the year and then pay to have them all bound together at the end of the year, creating a repository of local and international news and stories. But which newspaper was first? In 1834, the Kalamahawai'i, or Hawaiian Luminary, was the first newspaper to be published by the male students of Lahaina Luna School. Former Kentucky Pressman Reverend Lauren Andrews taught the students how to gather information, write it up, and print it. The newspaper was a primer for the students with news, stories, illustrations, and information on exotic animals. And we had no winners today, so we stumped you on that one. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We started the week having a conversation with two lawmakers, Representative Cynthia Thielen and Senator Laura Thielen, mother-daughter duo who announced they won't be running for re-election. Today, you'll hear from another Laura Thielen. She's married to Representative Cynthia Thielen's son, and she is the new head of Partners in Care, the group charged with the point-in-time count for our homeless here on Oahu. That count takes place next week, Thursday, from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. We still need some volunteers. We're getting very close to our minimum requirement that we're, we've placed on ourselves of 400. We're looking for more volunteers for the rural areas, so North Shore, Haleiwa, those kinds of areas. So if you're particularly interested in those areas, it would be great to get some more volunteers there. But we will take volunteers from anywhere. And now in the past, I know you've had um, training leading up to the count? We have a lot of training available. So between now and the count, we have at least five or six more trainings going on. And those will be in the regions where you will be surveying. But if you can't make it to those areas, then we'll be able to plug you in other places. Uh, Over the course of the last 20 years, the survey has uh, changed significantly. Uh, When I first did it more than 20 years ago, there was, you know, one page of questions and we were just trying to get a basic count. Now, we're actually delving more into issues of why people are becoming homeless so that after the count we can actually follow up with them and help with any services that they might need and that goes as so far as to ask people if they're they have native Hawaiian ancestry and if they do if they know whether or not they're on the homelands wait list And if they say yes or no, we can actually double check that and then go back out to them and let them know, yes, you are on the list. No, you're not. This is what you need to do. So you're getting a better handle on the hard data. Yes. Yes. And we're delving into a lot of questions about vet services, veteran services. So making sure that people that should have access to extra services have that ability to hook up with them. And we've been hearing a lot about the census this month as well because the count is so important. And so how does the homeless point-in-time count dovetail with that? Well, we've been working with the Census Bureau for several months to make sure that whatever we can help them with after the point-in-time count, we can do that. So we've created some community groups that we are part of to make sure that those who are experiencing homelessness are counted in the census as well. Are there any additional challenges that that you folks are seeing, particularly like in these rural areas? Is it just, you know, getting to, are are the homeless moving into other areas that maybe um, we've not seen them settle in before? Yes, over the last couple of years with the different laws that have come across and the different closures of parks, we've seen people migrate more into neighborhoods with the sit-lie bills that were affected in Waikiki and in Chinatown. Those really moved people out of those areas. But we've got amazing providers who have been able to find most of them, uh, but but they keep on moving. They're very transient. So keeping track of them and trying to get them connected to services is always a challenge. And I'm just curious, when you cover an area, let's say out on the North Shore, where you've got, let's say, a lot of growth and a lot of, uh, you know, I'm talking like um, Halekoa, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and you've got multiple landowners, I mean, how is it as far as access for uh, the volunteers that go out and, c- and count the people? 
Well, we have region leads for each region. We have seven different regions that we cover throughout the island of Oahu. So those region leads are from those areas. They're providers in that area. So they pretty much know what's going on in their area. So if there's private property or anything um, unusual like that where people are hanging out or, or spending the night, our outreach workers and providers usually know that and usually have a relationship with those property owners. And how is it? Uh, do you have a lot of return volunteers? Oh yes, we have a lot of return volunteers. It's a way to give back to the community that's very unique and it's a way for people to connect with their neighbors. Um, despite being homeless, they are our community members. And I think I think we're hearing a lot about that, whether it's from the state homeless coordinator or the city's coordinator, you know, Mark Alexander and Scott Morishige. Mm -hmm. I think they're talking about, look, this is a community problem. Yes. We need to solve it as a community. Yes, and, and what a lot of people don't realize is as much as we would love to pick folks up and just move them to a better spot, we don't have that legal right. And so rather than pushing them somewhere where they may not be willing to go, we're really engaged in, in creating trust and building a relationship with folks so that when they are willing and able to go to a new place, that we can help them. We will be doing it January 23rd, morning of Thursday, January 23rd, from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. And we'll be asking folks where they spent the night of the 22nd. And then when you uh, share information with the census takers, mm -hmm. uh, how does that work? Well, they'll be doing a completely different count. But what we're going to be able to really provide them is some ideas of where folks are. So this year, for the first time, we're, we're going completely digital. So the entire count is on an app. And we're doing that for several different reasons. We want to speed up the count so that we're not going over a day. But also, we're looking at deduplication. We don't want to count people more than once. So we've lessened the time of the count. And we're hoping that having an app helps us speed up the count. What our app also has is a GIS mapping capability. So when after we complete the count, we can actually talk to the Census Bureau and say, there is a group here, there is a group there, and we can help you, you get into those spots. I mean, that's great. That's yes. really hard data that's pinpointing yes. the exact location. Yeah, and it, we're going to be using it for providers to actually go out and provide services after the count, which we've never been able to do in, in such an organized fashion before. So is this the first time that we've used GPS? Yes. Up wow. until now, we've always had hard copies, so which, is, which means that if we can't read the survey, we can't count it. Um, or if a person doesn't want to continue uh, uh, answering the questions on a survey, we can't count it. With this app, we have the full survey, but we also have an observation tool, so providers can actually count people who don't want to participate in the actual survey, but we can still count them. So was that additional funding that you had to carve out? No. <laughs> and that's a wonderful thing. We have an HMIS, our Homeless Management Information System. We have our data manager, Alex, and he actually developed the app and created it. And, I mean, the licensing costs like $100 or something. So it's, it's really accessible. We've had providers playing with the app for a couple months now to really get used to it. So we hope that all the bugs are out of it. Of course, this will be the first year that we're using it. So we won't, it will be different from past counts. So it will take a couple of years of using this methodology to really see um, how accurate it is. But we're hoping this is a good start to the trend of using digital. Yeah, so this is breaking new ground here. Yes. Well, and the other thing is that, you know, in past when we've done a hard copy, we've asked certain questions and it leads to other questions. But if um, one of our questions are is, are you a native Hawaiian? If you state yes, it then asks you some more questions about Hawaiian homelands and things like that. If you answer no, it automatically skips to the next question. So there's not a waste of time with irrelevant questions. Um, and that's happened in the past where, you know, a surveyor will just ask every single question on the survey, even if it doesn't pertain to the person. And that takes up time and that causes confusion. Now, I know there was a lot of concern with the census about, you know, immigration Yes. Questions that were, were being asked. I mean, do, do any of your volunteers get that pushed back at all from 
from the clients that they're trying to survey? Well, we don't ask those questions, so we'll leave that to the Census Bureau. But there are questions on our survey that are very personal. And so, you know, training is a really big part of it. How do you engage the person that you're surveying so they feel comfortable in answering it? But the flip side of that, uh, or the good side of that, is because we're doing an app, we can actually show the device to the person and they can push the button of the answer that they would like to select. We don't even have to see it. So if, they, if we get the sense that a person's uncomfortable actually talking about some sensitive questions, we can just turn the device to them and let them answer it themselves. Wow, okay, so then that would break down that yes. barrier. Say, look, you can have your privacy. Yes. You don't need to say it out loud. Yep, and then, then it will go to the next question, and we go from there. So we're hoping that this really encourages people to be honest with us and to be comfortable with us. Well, hats off to you for... Uh, you know, for your staff for coming up with yeah. this idea and for uh, being able to roll it out, and, and hopefully then maybe other uh, other places across Hawaii and across the country yes. can use this. That's what we're really hoping for, and a big shout out to all the providers who have bought into this idea. They uh, we've really not gotten a very much pushback against it, and that's what's making it, it possible to do this. Okay, so the twenty third, but you you still need a few more volunteers to get you yep. to the four hundred. Yep. And so what's the best uh, way for people to reach out to you? best way to contact us is through our website. There's a volunteer uh, sign-up form, and you can actually sign up for the area that you're interested in, and that's www.partnersincareoahu.org. Okay. All right. Laura Thielen, thank you very much. Thank you so <laughs> much. We were talking to Laura Thielen, the new executive director of Partners in Care. We were talking about the upcoming count of our homeless population here on Oahu. You know, we are out of time, so we must bid you an aloha on this Friday. On Monday, we're preempted for the Martin Luther King holiday, and we're not sure how the impeachment trial will affect our programming just yet, so stay tuned. But hey, call our talkback line and give us some feedback about what you heard this week. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to hear today's show again or get another past show or links to more information, go to the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is uh, produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, and Paige Okamura. Thanks to Gypsy 808 for recording our theme music, and mahalo to John DeMello for the Backyard Quiz Chant. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us next week when we pick up the conversation.